Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. The drive to become a professional athlete is something that not many of us can relate to. But in healthcare, our staff take eerily similar paths in the pursuit of a different type of excellence. From the hard work and focus it takes to get through our studies, to the pressures we place on ourselves to be the best, a journey like Dane Bird Smith's to reach the pinnacle of his field and medal at the Olympic Games is universal for clinicians. With that pressure comes a downside and sadly, many disappointments. But it is how we work through the challenges and pick ourselves up that is truly inspiring. Thank you guys, I'm Dane Bird-Smith. I'm an Australian Olympian. I've been competing at the highest level for Australia for the past 12 years. And to me, starting off with that video is, you know, we see familiar faces out there. I made a sneaky little cameo as well, just just jumped in there. But it's all about what connects us, what brings us together as Olympians. And it's that Olympic mentality. It's about pushing ourselves to the absolute limit throughout our entire lives to get to a place that no one has really ever been before and try to break those limits. So I want to chat to you today a little bit about my story about where does it all start? Where does this Olympic mentality come from? Where does the drive just emerge from? What does it take to get there? All the things that go into becoming an Olympian and at the end of the day, how much can it cost? What is the toll that is taking on our Olympians and on anyone who's trying to perform or to reach the absolute top in their field? This was a photo taken when I was in year two. And I go back to this photo a lot because I was asked at this stage by one of our teachers, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the dream for me was that I always wanted to be an Olympian. I thought it would be amazing to don the green and gold. My other career choice was a rodeo clown, so I'm really glad I didn't go down that path. <laughs> but it was something within me that every time I stepped out to play soccer with my mates, to go and play handball in the school court, to run the cross country, I gave it absolutely everything because my, there was this innate desire to compete. Not just to win, but to always compete and give my absolute all in everything. Along the way, as I went into high school, I actually had my first opportunity to compete in race walking. One of my teachers challenged me and she set the bar and said, hey, look, I know you're really great at running, at doing all the other track and field events, and I know you're competitive. We want to get some more points for the school. What do you think about taking on the challenge of a 3K walk? And I had never, ever done it before. It was, it was something that was a little bit daunting, not only because race walking isn't the most popular event, especially at high school, but it was also because I had never done this before ever. And I was stepping out to compete against other people 
who had been training for this for years. I finished third in that race. Uh, there were only three people in the race. <laughs> I was dead last, but the thing that really inspired me and encouraged me to keep going was that my teacher said, you finished, you finished three kilometers, you stepped up, you did what we asked, you got points for the school. And from there, I was really encouraged to keep going and it kind of snowballed. I went on to the district carnival and I thought I'd put in a little bit of hard work because I wanted to get better and I finished third again. And it was that traction that continued, that I continued to train myself and I continued to keep going. Each time I had a little bit of encouragement from my achievements, but along the way, there's always gonna be setbacks as well. And as the journey took off for me in race walking, I learned pretty quickly that there's always really big setbacks and no matter how hard we push, there are always gonna be times when we fail. My first reality check came in 2012. I was a junior athlete. I had won every junior title for the last four or five years and one of the fastest in Australia. I had been breaking junior records and I had stepped up against the seniors to make my debut in the 20 kilometer race. So I was stepping up for a spot to try to be in the Australian Olympic team for the London Olympic Games. Every four years, only three athletes in every single event are selected. So not only do we have to make the qualifying standards, which are unbelievably difficult in the fact that a lot of events don't have athletes qualified for them. We also then have to compete for just three spots. Now, Australia has a really, really big reputation in race walking as having a great uh, legacy. We've had guys like Nathan Deeks, Jared Talent, Luke Adams, Adam Rudder, Jane Saville, amazing, amazing people. And so I was competing actually against Jared, Nathan Deeks, and some of the best guys in Australia who were also the best on the world. One in 542,000 people will become an Olympian every four years. That's basically what the odds are. That's what we're up against. My dad told me at the end of this race, I was, I was doing the 20K for the national titles, trying to get a spot in the London Olympic team. I finished fourth. I had gone under the Olympic qualifying time by 25 seconds, but I was three seconds behind the next competitor, Nathan Deeks. That three seconds was about from here to the other side of the stage. That's what separated me and the last six, seven years of hard work from being at Olympic Games and having to stay at home and watch it. So I was, for me, that was a huge, huge disappointment and I was really, really devastated. This photo was taken at the end of that race, 20 Ks of hard work, and I had come within three seconds of making an Olympic team. I was shattered. But my dad told me about he used to say that quitters never win because winners never quit. But he also told me that it was a bit more than that, in that winners become winners because they never quit. They keep trying. They keep pushing themselves throughout the setbacks. They're not born winners. They get there through the hard work. And that's always stuck with me. And I always continued to keep pushing myself no matter what happened, no matter what setbacks I went through. I think that moving on from this this point, I then took that mentality and I wanted to set the bar higher than I had ever done before. So I wasn't just satisfied with making a team. I didn't want to just be able to go to the Olympic Games and call myself an Olympian. I wanted to do something more. I set the bar even higher for myself. So after not making the team in 2012, within a month I turned around and I was talking to my coach and to my family and saying, the next Olympics that comes around, 
I'm not just going to make it, I'm going to be the fastest ever Australian at an Olympic Games. So I had set the bar so high that even if I didn't quite achieve that, I would still make some kind of achievement where I was at an Olympic Games or I was doing myself proud in some way. One hour, 19 and 35 seconds. This was the time that would have made me the fastest ever Australian at an Olympic Games. I had looked through all the record books right after that disappointment in 2012 about how fast I had to go to be the fastest Australian and the fastest to win a medal. For four years, I used to write 119.35 on the glass in my shower. Whenever the, the shower fogged up, I'd write 119.35. I did the same thing when I was overseas. Wherever I was competing, I would take that number with me. I wanted to kind of manifest this number into my journey because that's where I wanted to be and that's where I knew I was capable of getting to. Four years, there were 1,554 days that I took from that race that I missed out to the race that would take me at Olympic Games. I trained each and every single day with a purpose and with a focus and a drive that I wanted to be at the Olympics and I wanted to be the fastest Australian. This quote, but where do you think you are realistically? Every year we sit down with the heads of our sport, our national sporting organisation, and we have a chat about where you want to be, what your goals are, where you're currently at, what do you need, what kind of support do you need to move forward? And I said right after not making the Olympic Games, I, I turned around, maybe it was a bit naive of me, but literally within two months I said to the head of the uh, National Sporting Organisation of Athletics Australia, said I wanted to be the fastest ever in Australian at Olympic Games and I was going to win a medal in Rio. And that was their reply. But where do you think you are realistically right now? And I think that's a theme that we can all kind of understand and relate to is that being shortchanged on our ability and our desire, how badly you want something or how much you know you can perform but other people are still going to write you off before you've even started. When I went into Rio, leading into that Rio year, I won the national championships in Australia. I had beaten Jared Talent, who is a current Olympic medalist, I had beaten Nathan Deeks, who was a world record holder. I had stamped my authority on the 20 kilometer race walk in Australia. I went into that race in Rio, ranked 27th in the world. On paper, I was just 27th, but I knew that I had so much more to give and I knew that I was gonna fight for every single position on that day. Every time I saw something like this where I was ranked 27th or somebody said, oh, don't get your hopes too set on trying to get a medal or you know, be the fastest ever. Every time somebody said that, I would take that on board. I wasn't just trying to block out the negatives. I was taking on them on board to be fuel, fuel to my fire, to keep pushing myself. There's nothing better than, that I love personally than to prove somebody wrong. Prove somebody wrong who said that you can't do this or you're not going to be good enough. In 2016, I made history. I stepped up onto the line and I had 20 kilometers to prove myself. I went from rank 27th to doing a 25 second PB, personal best, and taking a bronze medal. I had to fight off a Brazilian who was right behind me in fourth place. With four kilometers to go, it was just me, two Chinese guys, and the Brazilian right on my hammer. And I had to fight for every single inch of that race. 
But when I stepped up onto the podium to accept my bronze medal, there was this huge, overwhelming array of emotions that at the time you just can't put it into words. But I realize now that that medal, the weight of it around my neck, it's half a kilo. That was the legacy. To me, that is the legacy of the Olympic Games, of all the people come before me who had sacrificed so much to be in Olympic Games, had, had put their lives on hold, had tried their absolute best. And all the Olympics that came before that. The journey for me, this is now one of my proudest parts of my career, is not just the highlights of winning a medal, but the journey throughout. I look back and I think about every really tough training session that got me to where I was, that made me into the person that I was, that a better athlete and a better me. The support that I have. For me, athletics is not just an individual sport. I do the 20K and I walk out there and it's just me, but it's been my coach, my dad, my family, my friends, my training partners who have been there every single step of the way as well. They're the ones who are beside me. They're out there. They were cheering me on in Rio. We had seven on the sideline versus a crowd of about 9,000 Brazilians and all sorts of other internationals. But those seven that were on the line, those Aussies, you could hear them the whole two kilometers. They were the loudest bunch. And also the future. That bronze medal to me now represents the future, the future of my sport. So I love to be able to take that bronze medal and go out to schools, visit the kids, inspire the next generation. That's what it's all about to me. My bronze medal is actually totally rusted now, just from the amount of people that I've given it to and I've said, feel the weight of it. This is, if this is where you want to be, you can achieve it. You know, put it around your neck, take a photo. The Olympic spirit, this is really what connects all of the Olympians, is that desire and that, that deep burning desire to, to compete at the world stage and be the absolute best in the world. The Olympic spirit is that, that legacy that connects us through all the years of all the Olympians, past and present and to the future. The saying is, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. And we are very much a connected community. But the Olympic spirit can also bring tough times with it as well. Going to Olympics and coming home, you have a thing called the Olympic Blues, where it is now acknowledged that a lot of athletes that come home tend to struggle with, regardless of how they performed, they could have won a gold medal, they could have been injured, they could have not even made the start line. And all the people back home who tried to qualify didn't quite make that qualifying time and have to now watch their event on TV from afar. These can be really, really tough emotions to deal with. And it's something that up until recently, a lot of our sporting organisations just kind of ignored. I know that when I was coming through as a junior, I had absolutely no, no exposure to what the feelings would be, whether you make it, whether you perform well, whether you don't perform well. And I think that's something really important that we need to change now and we need to address because there's too many Olympians coming home and, you know, sitting in the dark and just feeling alone and not knowing where to go from there. To me, my own journey to get to that price of perfection, to be able to get to where I was, I was constantly pursuing perfection, trying to hone my skills, trying to be the best ever. I used to do over 150 kilometers every single week. That was just race walking. On top of that, I would be going to the gym three times a week. I would be doing cross-training sessions on the bike or on, in the swimming pool. 
I would be going and seeing physiotherapists every single week because I was just living with a constant fatigue, soreness, pain somewhere because I was pushing my body each and every day. And along the way as well is the huge amount of sacrifice that comes with it. The sacrifice isn't just, you know, oh, okay, I'm not going to have a job for a while. I'll focus on my athletics and do that. It's also relationships that get pushed to the side. Friendships, you can't go out and have a couple of beers on a weekend with a mate. I used to turn up to parties, birthday parties with my friends and, you know, they'd be having 18th, 21st, and you'd almost be expected that you're going, if you're not drinking with them, then you're not enjoying the party and you're not giving respect to their birthday. And I had so many of these where I had turned up and I would say, well, I've brought some milk or I've brought, some, uh, you know, an orange juice or some Coca-Cola or something and that's all I'm going to have tonight. And I'm here for you but I've also got to be home bed at 10 o'clock because I've got a session at 6 a.m. the next morning going up Mount Cutha, 20K. So that was the sacrifice for me as well. And that can be really, really difficult. And again, something that we we're never exposed to or taught about that we would have to put aside. It's just something that as your journey begins, you make these decisions and these sacrifices and it continues along the way. Training the mind and the body will follow. For me, this is as we move into a bit more of a mental health side. For me, mental health wasn't a big thing when I started my journey. As I said, I didn't have any exposure to it and I hadn't suffered proper setbacks or disappointment in my career to actually know what it was about. Everything for me that was mental was all about performance. You know, I'd turn up to training and as I went to training, I would be visualizing, I would be using imagery. I would be trying to pump myself up, get ready for the training session. During the training session, we'll be using simulation. So I would be out training and I would be imagining, pushing myself, saying, okay, you know, the two Chinese guys are right there in front of me. They're about to make their move. I've got a kick. And with 3K to go in my training session, I would try to keep on pushing harder and harder. Racing, the same thing. We would try to, using mental techniques to try to get yourself into the zone find that flow state, whether you need to be pumped up more or a bit more relaxed and zen. And same with recovery. I actually found it was really important to use my brain to slow down each and every afternoon as I went to bed to try to get into that recovery zone and actually help the muscles heal. I used to visualize my muscles actually stitching themselves back together because each and every day we were tearing them apart during that training session. And I 100% feel that that power that we have in our mind can make huge differences to our recovery, to our training, to everything involved. After winning the bronze medal in the Olympics, I continued on my training. I just went from the Olympic Games to the next race, to the next race, to the next race. I had 17 races throughout 2017 where there were every single race was a continual PB. I didn't seem to be able to put a foot wrong. I was uh, the Australian Athlete of the Year in 2017 as well. But underneath it all, everything was starting to take a bit of a toll. The financial drain was starting to hit us. As an Olympian, as an Olympic bronze medalist, we still only get funding around about the doll. And the funny thing was that I couldn't even get student Centrelink benefits because I was accepting support through our sporting organisation, through that funding. Juggling relationships, as I said before, our friends, my family, everyone was kind of getting pushed away because I was so focused on achieving. So I focused on just that one purpose of being the best athlete that I could be. I was missing university. I was having to 
spend time away from my degree. I was trying to become a teacher. And, you know, I was every, each and every year I would continually get pushed back. There would be one cohort after another that I was continuously falling back to. And I was constantly exhausted. And all of these things kept eating away at me slowly. To the point where in 2017, I had a moment where I was out training. I was doing an 18K session just down the river from regatta out to New Farm Park, basically, and back home. And along the way, as I go up and over the bridge of the Story Bridge and back home, this one night, everything just kind of felt a bit more to me. I felt really heavy. I felt really dragged down. And the emotions that I had inside, even now, it's still very raw. Um, I, I stopped my training session along the way at the Story Bridge. And at that point, I thought, this is where it's too much. Um, I, had a, I had a serious moment there where I actually stepped up to the side of the bridge. I thought, this is, I'm just going to be able to jump off the side of here, and that river will be able to wash away every problem, all the burdens that I am to all my friends, my family, who are trying to support me along the way. And this was such a scary moment for me, um, and it still hits me pretty hard right now, that I had gone from where I thought I should be on top of the world. You know, I was an Olympic medalist. I was winning every race. I was coming home and I was doing personal bests and I was in the best shape of my life. But so many things were going wrong as well. I was starting to get an absolute, just a fog in my brain and all my decisions were struggling. I actually would turn up to university sometimes and I didn't realise that things were on, assignments were due. Um, one time I ca actually came back to my lecturer and I said, I don't know whether I made this exam or not, was I there? And I had actually been there, but I had only filled out maybe a quarter of the exam. And that's how blanked out and spaced out I was because I was so focused on something else that I didn't realize what was happening. But that night scared me so much that I had to go home. I managed to, there was actually a guy who was walking past who um, just had a chat to me, just one conversation. You know, I think he could tell that there was something wrong. And yeah, basically from there, I just, I talked myself out, went home, and I spoke straight away to my doctor. And the best thing about that was he got me to fill out a form. He was really chill about it, and he was like, look, you've, I think you've got depression, and I think that's what we need to work on. And as soon as he said that, you know, for me, this was the first steps. It was a weight off my shoulders. All of a sudden, I just went, oh, holy crap, yeah, that's it. Like, I'm... That's, that's what's going on right now. Like, I actually had an idea about what was going on with me. And he explained everything that would go on and everything was making sense. As well, he, would, he referred me on to one of my sports psychologists, who at the time I was just working on mental performance with. And it was fantastic to be able to speak to him because he kind of showed me that mental illness isn't the end. I was expecting to go in and have this conversation with him about, you know, I had to give up my athletics and I had to you know, go and spend some time at a hospital getting myself right. Where, in fact, it was really the opposite. He basically said to me, what if I told you that you had just broken your ankle? Would you just give up your athletics? Or would you continue to rehabilitate that, to, to build yourself back, to strengthen it, and to make it actually into a new strength for yourself? And to me, that was huge. That was something I could focus on as an athlete. I could go, well, I'm really, really good at rehabbing because I can take each and every day, I can take some time and make sure that I'm doing the right things. 
We also decided that because I was very strong mentally with my visualizations that I made my shadow, all of the, all of the weight, um, all of the cycle of guilt, all of the cycle of that pain and depression, I put it into my shadow. So each and every day, whenever I would train and I would feel down on myself or I would feel like I couldn't do it, I would look down and I would just go, well, that's just him talking. Let's go out and take him for a walk and make him push through all this pain. And so that was how I kind of kept myself going through those stages as well as while I was trying to take care of myself and learn how to actually be a bit more compassionate to myself, which was really tough. Nowadays, I've actually got the opportunity as a Lifeline Australia ambassador that I get to speak with people like yourselves, with kids from schools, all about taking care of yourself, taking care of your mental health and knowing, being aware and then knowing the dangers as well. And these were stats that I learned along the way that I had no idea of. Over 3,000 people a year take their lives in Australia. It's the leading cause of death for all Australians aged 15 to 44. That's absolutely huge to me. And the fact that I found out the men are three times more likely to take their own lives is, for me, really personal because I know how hard it is for me to speak out emotionally and to ask for help. You know, I, I, I hate the feeling of having to ask for help still. But I realise that we have to change this stigma we have to change the, the concept of men being strong and stoic and never talking about their emotions. As well, I had to overcome the fact that I had this continuous guilt as well that yes, I, I knew that I was dealing with depression, but at the same time I thought, my situation is really good. Like, I'm an Olympic medalist, I'm doing something that I love, I'm traveling all around the world. So I was, I wasn't, I was devalidating my own feelings. And that's the thing is we need to make every situation and every feeling valid. No matter what you're feeling, it doesn't matter comparing you to somebody else. They may be in a really terrible place, you know, struggling financially out on the streets. It could be really, really dire. They could be in a huge relationship breakup. But your feelings as well are just as valid as theirs. And it's not something that you should be brushing over just because you feel you're in a better place than somebody else. The Commonwealth Games in 2018, this was a huge, huge moment for me. I was stepping out onto the start line knowing that I, I had been battling depression for the last six, six months since I had been diagnosed. And I still had the pressure of a nation because I hadn't spoken out at a one word, not even to my coach about how I was feeling. This was just between me, my psych, my wife. And I continued to train, I continued to push myself. And so the nation, the whole of Australia, just expected me to be able to go out and to win a Commonwealth Games medal, to win gold at the Gold Coast Games. I was up against some of the best guys in the world. I was actually ranked fourth in this event, something that you know, the media never tells you. They're just like, yep, Dane's going for gold, it's gonna be awesome. The best guys in the world, Tom Bosworth, had a three and 5K world record that year. Lebohung Shange, from South Africa was one of the fastest guys in the world. He won a bronze medal the year before. The Kenyan athlete and the Canadian were both huge threats as well. And when I stepped up onto that line, I had a huge fear, a fear of what could be. Not the fact that I could fail, but I was most fearful that I could actually perform well. 
I could actually achieve something pretty huge and have a moment where I've overcome something massive. And that was really, really scary. As the gun went on your marks, bang. I had so much doubt in my mind. I had to try to push everything out and I was getting frustrated and I was getting angry. But that made something happen. One decision, one decision that I was able to make and to push myself forward, which helped me change a lot of things in my life. That to me was definitely the proudest moment of my career. Not because I won the gold, not because I was wearing the green and gold, the Australia on my chest, not because I had broken a Commonwealth Games record that had stood, that had been set by my idol Nathan Deeks and had stood for the last 20 years. It was because I had made a decision that when I raced, when I did this, I was gonna do it for me. And it changed my perspective because all of a sudden I had this love for racing. I had this love for what I was doing again. And I find now that the true courage that I've found is accepting the fact that I went through something really difficult and I came out the other side and I still have to live with that and I still have to continue to help myself. So that's moving forward, time for yourself, whatever it is that you guys do that, that you can Find some time for yourself to really enjoy something. Find your passions. You know, acknowledge your productivity. For me, I had to start really small. I used to write lists, and at the top of my list was literally just make your bed or brush your teeth. And if I managed to tick that off the list, I thought, wow, okay, maybe I can get to the next one and the next one. And I would continue to acknowledge my productivity, even if it was just the smallest of things. Nurturing relationships. This can be really tough. It takes a lot of time and effort to actually keep friends, keep family, keep relationships intact. But you have to keep working on it because it's so worth it. Because if you ever need that support, they're the people who are gonna be there for you. Thank you guys so much for listening to me today. Thank you guys. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.